Remain standing with me just for a moment as we turn our attention again to the Word of God. And our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. I think it would be appropriate, though, for the context to begin in verse 1. So let's read Matthew 12, uh, verses 1 through 14. This is God's holy and inerrant Word. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please be seated. If we were able, like we spoke of last week, to get into our time machine and go back to the very beginning of time, it would be a fascinating thing to witness being coming from non-being, what we would notice is that in the very beginning, God would speak light into creation. It would be a dark scene and suddenly light would come in onto, uh, into being. And we could see. It would be a supernatural sort of light because God hadn't created the sun and the moon or the stars yet. So a, a supernatural sort of light would shine. Sort of like the light that we find in the book of Revelation. And we would see the Spirit there hovering over what the Scriptures call a formless and void creation. And day by day, day by day, God would speak. And with each passing day, more and more order would be given to this creation. He would separate the heavens from the heavens so that there would be a heavens above and a heavens beneath. And then he would separate the dry land and the water. And gradually we would see dimension coming into this creation and, and chaos gradually receding into the background and order coming into creation and beauty 
And God would give a a domain to the birds of the air. And a domain to the insects and to the beasts. And He would create man. And He would create man specifically to exercise dominion over this creation to ensure that the order He has brought would remain. And on the seventh day, He would rest. And as one author has noted, the Hebrew word kadosh, holy, for the first time in all of creation would be uttered with reference to not a space, not a man, but to time. On the seventh day, God created sacred time. And in the creation of that day, God is saying something specific to His people. He's saying to you, I am not an Egyptian taskmaster. We could have ended the creation week on day six. And God could have said to you, your existence is for the earth. You exist for dominion. You exist to work my land and cause it to give me a return. He could have been a pharaoh. But instead, what God does on this seventh day is He invites you to come and to dine with Him. And we ought not treat His grace on this day like a fast food meal that we hurriedly scarf down so that we can move on to the things that we really enjoy. Rather, we treat the Sabbath properly when we recognize that it is a whole day feast that the Lord has set aside for you to come and eat with Him. He meets you there he, you see, He has set the Sabbath day in your horizon. It is like a lighthouse that is set upon a craggy beach. And when you are rocked by the waves of life and you rise and fall with the afflictions of a week, always on your horizon is the Sabbath day in which the Lord promises to meet with you in a special way and to pour grace into your life through Christ. The Savior meets you there. And the tumult of the waves do not overwhelm you. Or you might think about, you might think about the Sabbath day like waves that gently rock or lap upon a seashore. Because as soon as one Sabbath has passed you by, there's another one on the horizon. Another day of feasting. Another day of enjoying the delicacies that Christ has set for him for us on a table. The sad aspect of our sinful lives is this. Is that we don't cultivate a love for the Sabbath. Remember God's command? Remember the Sabbath day. Not do the Sabbath day. Remember it. Call it to mind. Set your heart on it. Remember it. We don't 
cultivate a love for the Sabbath and the special communion promised to us throughout this day. Instead, we trade it for lesser loves. We are content to snack rather than to dine. To enjoy the appetizer and leave before the meal. But what Jesus shows us as we look to Matthew chapter 12 and in His dealings with these Pharisees is that God has given us the Sabbath day and it is sanctified especially through certain types of work. It is sanctified as we learned this morning through intentional acts of compassion. Notice with me in verse 9, as we look back here, what's happening. Uh, Jesus goes on from there and entered into their synagogue. You remember uh, last week, Jesus was walking along with his disciples, and, and as they were walking, they got hungry. And they plucked the heads of grain off and rolled them around in their hands and threw it into their mouth. And the Pharisees, always looking for an opportunity to bring some sort of condemnation to someone other than themselves, saw this happening. They said, what's going on here, fella? You're breaking the Sabbath. Your men are working. And so what did Jesus do? How did he respond? Well, Jesus took them to the law, and he took them to the prophets. And he said, notice, my friends, that in fact, we are keeping the Sabbath. God has authorized works of necessity, works that prepare us for his worship. Notice what David did. Notice what the, the priests do in the tabernacle. And you have one who is greater than the temple with you now. Well, here Jesus is not daunted. You remember in the beginning of Joshua? It, it, uh, uh, God challenged Joshua over and over in chapter 1 with these words. He says, only be courageous, Joshua. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Be courageous, Joshua. Remember my word and don't be afraid. Well, here, Jesus, Jesus is the better Joshua. He is fearless. And rather than being daunted by these men or, or expecting that he's going to enter into the synagogue and saying, oh, they're going to challenge me again, fellas, maybe let's just go this morning. We'll go hang out at uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house again. He's undaunted. And so he goes into their synagogue he enters in and there is a trap ready made for him now remember just for a second that in at this time and later the synagogue had become not just a place for worship it was sort of a community gathering place so they would conduct worship on the sabbath day but they would also hold trials now they couldn't sentence a man to death but they could whip a man. They could beat him. And that's very important in this context. They could hold trials, and these men were the judges. What is the trap? Notice what the Pharisees say in verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. Think if you walked into your job one day and your coworkers had set up this very elaborate scheme. They wanted to trap you making illegal photocopies so that they could eventually fire you. Well, that's exactly what's happened. They found this man in the congregation with this withered and dried hand, which means that, that his hand uh, had become shriveled up 
he, he was suffering from a sort of paralysis so that, so that he couldn't open his hand. He couldn't use it. They've taken this man and they've put him in a prominent position. Now, now think about the insensitivity of this moment. That rather than showing a compassion for this man, they simply use him as bait for a trap. The Pharisees are using this man as an object lesson on Sabbath observance. And notice what they ask Jesus. Will you heal him? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Matthew goes further. Notice what he says there in verse 10. What's the purpose What's their motivation? So that they might accuse him. Now that, what you need to understand is that is a legal term. The Pharisees are looking for an opportunity to bring a charge against him. And it's a perfect spot. Let's just have him come to us. We will let him make his confession in front of the entire synagogue. And then as, as soon as we stop reading the, from the scroll of Isaiah, we'll dismiss the people and we can hold trial. Notice the question. This is important. What is lawful? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Here's where it's important for us to have a very clear understanding of what it is the Pharisees are asking. Because sometimes we think that when they're asking what is lawful, they're saying, what do the Ten Commandments say? What do you read in the Torah? That's not what they're asking. You see, at this point in Jewish history, the Jews had developed a very elaborate system of legal code. They're not asking what the Scriptures say. They're saying to Jesus, what is the tradition of our fathers? And even to this day, the Jews will appeal to uh, their legal book, which we call the Talmud. Because for a Jew, for a Jew, listen to this now. God's word is fundamentally deficient. Why? Because in the Jewish understanding of the Torah, it has gaps. And those gaps have to be filled in, do you see? How do we fill in those gaps? Well, we ask the scholars. What do you think? What is your interpretation of this passage? And they've added those interpretations to the book of the Talmud. So when the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, is it lawful? They're not asking him, what does Moses say? And if you think that, you will end up on a wrong conclusion about this passage. What they are asking him is, what do the church fathers say? These traditions form their basis for determining what is lawful, not Scripture alone. We're not post-Reformation here. This is not Martin Luther that we're dealing with. 
This is why, do you see, that just a few chapters, Jesus is going to say to them this, for the sake of your tradition, you make void the Word of God. Now do you understand why just a few verses ago, He said to them, have you read 1 Samuel? Have you read Exodus? He is accusing them. Because all they've been led to understand is what, um, what the traditions say. It would be like in, in our tradition, all, all you read is the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and the shorter catechism, and you don't devote yourself to the Scriptures. You see, they don't know the Word. They don't understand it. And some imagine that the primary problem with the Pharisees is legalism. You read a passage like this, or you read every interaction that Jesus has with these Pharisees, and you say, okay, here's another, another interaction with legalism. And what Jesus is confronting is that these Pharisees are, are teaching people that they gain acceptance with God through law-keeping. And an unfortunate effect of this view is that, that many Christians think keeping God's law is unchristian. But remember Jesus' question to them. Have you read? Do you understand? Do you know the Word? The, stand, the problem that you should identify in this passage is the Pharisees had adopted a standard other than God's Word as their own. That's the problem. You don't know the Word. You, you proclaim that you are the teacher. Too close there. I'll tell you a story about something like that in a minute. Um, you proclaim that you are the teachers of God's people. You are teaching God's people and you don't know His Word. And that's the challenge for you and me, do you see? When you read a passage like this, it's not legalism. The challenge for you and me is, am, what am I appealing to? What is the authority in my life? What, what of my beliefs am I not taking back and comparing to God's Word? They set aside the authority of Scripture for the traditions of men. And so what Jesus is doing here with reference to the, to the Sabbath is He's saying, let's scrape off your traditions. I'm going to clean it off. And I'm going to show everyone what it meant, what it is in its beauty You and I are not Pharisees when we are legalistic. We are Pharisees when we use anything other than Scripture to determine how to honor and obey Christ. Well, my mama told me, great. Be like a Berean and compare what your mama told you to the Bible. Well, my Sunday school teacher told me, wonderful. Go back to the Word. What does the Word say? You know, every generation that we raise ought to be first-generation Christians, not depending merely on the traditions that we hand to them, but understanding how to go to the Word themselves. This is why the Reformation happened in the first place. 
Because in Roman Catholicism, the whole basis is, well, the word is insufficient, so let's build our tradition. Listen to the traditions. It has equal authority to the word. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did. We've just rebuilt it and called it 2.0. So let's see how Jesus issues the counter challenge in verses 11 to 12. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Jesus here is appealing to Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. I want you to turn over there with me just for a second. And I'll give you just an example of how the Pharisees would have used a passage like this in Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 to 5. One of my professors used to tell a story about a, a preacher, and he was really fired up about his sermon. And he was quoting Christ and saying, Lo, I come soon. And he said it once, and he didn't think that he had everybody's attention. And so he said it again. Lo, I am coming soon. And the people started to wake up a little bit, and so he decided to say it a third time. Lo, I am coming soon. And about that time, he leaned over really far and tumbled over the pulpit and into the lady's lap in the first row. And she, he said, I am so sorry. And she said, don't worry about it. You warned me three times. (laughs) I'm glad the doctor's in the house. That could have been a a bad moment. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. In other words, you, from God's perspective, you could never have that Seinfeld episode where you just stand by and watch somebody be robbed and do nothing about it. If you see someone, his animal's got a burden, he's got a burden, God's expectation of his people, even if, even if you don't like this man, you are to go and, and you are to help him. Now let me tell you how the Pharisees use this verse. Notice in verse 4, it says, if you meet your enemy's ox. And then in verse 5, do you see the difference? It says, if you see the donkey of one who hates you. So the Pharisees look at something like that and they say, and, and this is in the Talmud, it says, um, what's the difference between seeing and encountering And they would say, well, seeing means sort of a long way off, so we'll call that about an 18-minute walk. So here, what the Scriptures, how we're going to apply this is if you you are fulfilling it, if you see the donkey, in other words, if that donkey is about an 18-minute walk away, that's to fulfill this command. 
To encounter it then must mean that it has to be closer than an 18-minute walk or about a mile away. So we'll call an encounter about a half a mile away. And this is encoded in the Talmud. You see, this is how fine they are getting with their obedience. And there's even a story in the book of Maccabees, which comes between the end of the Old Testament and the opening of our, our New Testament in which Roman armies were surrounding a Jewish encampment with men and women and children. And it happened on the Lord's Day, on Sabbath Day. And the Roman army attacked, slaughtering men, women, and children. Why? Because the Jewish men would not take up arms on the Sabbath day and defend their families. This is a Pharisaic understanding that you can somehow violate one command, the sixth, to fulfill another. Jesus turns this on its head. Notice what he says going back to Matthew chapter 12. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit, literally it says this Sabbath, today. If today one of you, one of your sheep fall into a pit, what are you going to do? And they would say, well, our, our Talmudic condition, uh, our Midrashic tradition says that we can lower some food into that sheep and we can get it out of the pit. That's our tradition. And so Jesus is asking the question here now, well, why can you do that for a sheep, but you can't do it for a man? How is that a fulfillment of God's Word, which clearly says to you on the principle of creation that man is more valuable than a sheep? The conclusion from Scripture then is that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Dear friends, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Of course, God would have His people do good on His day. Of course, it would be honorable to our Lord to do good on His day. After all, the day promotes the life of His people. Through proper stewardship, we promote the life of others. And, and so as we wrestle through these questions of, well, how do I fulfill the fourth commandment? How do I remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? One of the questions that arises regularly is, well, you know, what about doctors? What about an ambulance driver? What about a policeman or a fireman? Well, here's the principle that we appeal to from Scripture. Are they promoting life by their work? Are they doing good? Showing compassion? Of course. Then they are not violating God's Sabbath law. As one commentator writes, and so the Sabbath is a day for doing those things that preserve life and promote the well-being of our neighbors. 
This exception does not apply only to human life. The Jews were correct to make provisions for their livestock. Farmers must feed their herds. Dairymen must milk their cows. And veterinarians will have to tend to sick livestock. This is all, do you see, within keeping of what God intends for His day. He doesn't intend for you to leave a man in the ditch or a sheep. I want to tell you a story about Stonewall Jackson. Um, as you know, General Jackson was a, a served in the Confederate Army during the war between the states. And he was a devout Christian man and a devout Sabbatarian. And the legend about Stonewall Jackson is he would not even read a letter on the Lord's Day because he was so convinced that he wanted to keep it holy, that nothing secular would invade his Sabbath day. Well, on one particular occasion, on March the 23rd, 1862, General Jackson attacked a Union force on the Lord's Day. And his wife was perplexed. And she wrote him a letter. Why? Why would you attack on the Lord's Day, you have taught our family that this is a sacred day. And Jackson responded to his wife that he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with that decision. But he ultimately decided that he was forced to attack on that day. Why? Because the preservation of life demanded it. He is appealing to this principle. Works of necessity and works of compassion are what God has allowed under this command. And what a joy, think about this, what a joy would it be if Christians began using the Sabbath as an opportunity to serve others rather than expecting others to serve them. What if we were more intentional about inviting others into our home for a lunch? Or if we were more intentional about baking a cake and taking it to our neighbor as an act of ministry on the Lord's Day? Going into our neighborhoods and inviting others to church. Along with private worship, these are all good uses of God's day. It is not a do-nothing day. Well, Jesus has challenged the, the Pharisees. Let's notice at the very end here the ironic conclusion in verses 13 to 14. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But Jesus did good, didn't he? That man certainly remembered that Sabbath for the rest of his life. What a beautiful picture. What, what a beautiful picture of what Christ intends to do in your life every Sabbath. His intent, His goal for you individually is every Sabbath He's going to stretch out your hand. Every Sabbath, 
through the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments, Christ's intention for you is that He will renew and renew and renew like the waves lapping on that shore as you go to Him in public worship, as you go to Him in private worship, that He meets you there and not with meager portions, but to pour into your life and to help you endure the afflictions that you face. And He uses us to bring renewal to others too. When we use the time to set aside the work and recreation that are lawful on other days to minister in an intentional manner. And some of you do that. And notice the Pharisees, the great irony, what did they do? The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Do you know what they're doing? They're violating the sixth commandment. And the fourth with it. Revealing their total blindness. Their total blindness. And hardness of heart. Rather than rejoicing over Christ's work... It's, it's, it's hard to understand how they could observe this miraculous event and, and not be awestruck. Now, oh, this is ordinary. So that just as Christ, with His courage, entered into their synagogue, so they go out in cowardice. What an irony. Jesus revealed their true motive. It wasn't to lead the people in righteousness. That's not their real concern. Their concern was to garner praise for themselves. They wanted people to look at them. This is why they hated Christ. He took away from from their own pride. The Sabbath revealed Christ's extraordinary goodness and compassion And it revealed the Pharisees' hardness and corruption because they were only interested in their own good, not the good of others. The Sabbath day is sanctified through intentional acts of compassion. Is that part of your life? When you look ahead to each and every Sabbath day, are you looking ahead and thinking to yourself, making plans to do good for others? It should be. Setting aside our ordinary labor and recreation on the Lord's day, listen to this, when when God calls you to cease from your labors, understand that is not the end. That is not the purpose. But to set aside your ordinary labors and recreation is a means to an end. You set those things aside to do other things. To do good to others. God's will for us is to delight in Him through public and private exercises of worship and works of mercy. You use the Lord's day well when you plan, when you make plans for the good of other people. To serve them for the good of your own soul and for the souls of others. This is God's will for you on His holy day. Let's pray.
Our God and Father, we thank You first of all that You have designated this day for us as a day of, of bounty. And O oh, Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning. Would you please help us to retune our hearts? We at times become out of key. We only play minor scales when we ought to play major. And so we ask that by the work of Your Spirit, You would tune our hearts to sing Your praise. That we, as You command us in Isaiah 58, would call the Sabbath a delight. Not, not from some legal definition. But because on this day, You meet with us. On this day, You've given special promises to Your people. And, O oh Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we would so long for You as the deer pants for the water brooks that we would long for You that the end of the Sabbath, not the beginning, would be a lament to our hearts. And, O oh Lord, by this means, would You set our hearts on eternal things? Would You teach us to number our days? to remember that all of our time belongs to You and to use it accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.